Blog Talk Radio. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Stephen D. Katz was the executive producer at Xing Xing Studios in Beijing, one of the fastest growing studios in China from 2007 until 2017, with over 175 employees. He's also the executive producer for Wild Animal Babies, an 80-minute episode educational program based on the popular National Wildlife Federation characters. And the show began airing in October 2010. Steve is a senior contributing editor at Millimeter Magazine, VFX Magazine, and digital content producer. His design for the ambush sequence for the Paramount Harrison Ford blockbuster, Clear and Present Danger, is widely regarded as the first full use of digital pre-visualization in motion picture. This pioneer work is now part of a, a permanent exhibit at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York City. It has literally influenced a generation of directors on how to use digital technology to design for film. Steve has also worked as script consultant on both live action and animation projects and now works in New York City, Los Angeles, and Beijing on a variety of projects, including a new documentary on anti-aging. He's the author of Film Directing Shot by Shot, a best-selling film directing textbook that has been translated into nine languages. To date, more than 300,000 copies have been sold. In 2019, the second edition was published, followed by lectures in Beijing and the Swedish Story Academy. His second book, Cinematic Motion, also a bestseller, is in is, is now in its second edition, and both books are required texts in dozens of university and film school curriculums around the world. And Carol, Steve has the same publisher that you have, Michael Weezy Productions, right? Publications, that is. Well, yes, I, 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 uh, we have, yeah, I don't hear Carol, but um, we do share a publisher. Right. Yes, yes, you do. You share the same publisher. And then so um, there are a number of other things that you have in common. Um, and she feels that both are lucky to work, both of you are lucky to work with Michael. And uh, yes, she, we, we are both absolutely. so grateful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Michael, my, Michael, look, Michael, yeah. <laughs> yes, Michael Weesey Publishing has really done a fantastic job. And they've really emerged. I was one of Michael's first books, so it's a very long time now. But I knew Michael before that, and uh, when um, he was a producer. And uh, so Michael has – I've seen it grow from one book 
to what it is today, which is basically he is the top publisher of uh, books on filmmaking um, and media in the world. It really uh, done a fantastic I, job. Good. I knew, he, in my opinion, he's the best one on the planet, but I didn't know. I'm glad to hear you say that, Steve. That's excellent. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He's such a nice guy, and we're really lucky to have him to work with. But your Agreed. book, Steve, it has more visuals than I've ever seen in a film book, and it's <laughs> one of the easiest books to understand because of the visuals. This is well, pretty good. Uh, so thank now, you for that. Yeah. What I'd like to know is what your vision was for the book and why you wrote it. Sure. Well, um, this I'm going to. It's a little bit of a story behind this. Back in high school, I was in an experimental English course, and I was already making. I started making films when I was um, maybe eight or nine, doing stop motion. And um, but anyway, in my English course, we were we were we were able to create our own assignments. It was experimental. It was the '60s. You created ourselves. And uh, but my my uh, project, uh, which I created for myself, was to write a book on filmmaking. And um, of course, I wasn't expected to write a whole book, but just come up with a table of contents and description of each chapter, and that would be my contribution for for a grade. Anyway, but it um, and it seemed like a really good idea because at the time, uh, as a young filmmaker, I couldn't find any books on visualization. So um, I wanted to fill that need. Uh, and in terms of strategy, I reckon that. A director or a cinematographer trying to learn should practice shot flow, editing, whatever you want to call these things, because uh, musicians practice scales and chords to be able to perform. And I noticed that in the film schools and people that I was, uh, you know, uh, talking to at the time, um, you were expected to go out and make a film, but you really didn't do these foundational exercises. So I felt that uh, the best way for me to, to put that into a book, and this is, of course, years later after high school, when I got, actually got around to doing it, uh, was to do comparative staging options, um, and, uh, and, in, and especially in detail, meaning that there were many comparative versions of the same scene in the book. So, uh, and the other thing that drove it was at the time it was very expensive, really, to do anything in film compared to today, where there, you can shoot with an iPhone and get HD quality that you can project. I mean, uh, back when, uh, really, until the early 2000s, you had to spend hundreds of dollars to, to uh, go out and do any uh, filmmaking at all. So I felt the book was a way to say, okay, I'll go out and shoot these pictures and people will be able to look at all these images and compare, oh, here's how he did it this way. Oh, well, he substituted a, sh a wide shot here and uh, a close appearance. I'm just moving my eyes shot to shot over this to learn. And that's what you're trying to acquire, the skill to be able to look at a series of shots and understand what their emotional impact are. Because, you know, not only are there many ways to shoot uh, even a close-up, is it extreme? Is it is it a wide shot? Is it a medium close-up? Um, but also, there's so many ways to put it together in terms of multiple shots. So I tried to put that in the book. Uh, and so that was why there were so many, you know, I think there's like 800 pictures. But it's a visual wow. medium, so why not? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's why the book works so well, because everything you say is... You're saying it through a picture more than anything. You really get it. Yeah, well, that's, I, I, I have to say, there were books that came, there were before that tried to do some of this, but they didn't, you know, it was, without the pictures, you're kind of reading text, and then you don't know, you really don't know the physical uh, reaction or uh, that you would have, or emotional reaction you would have to a series of pictures because it's described in text. So 
anyway, that was, and I think it was one of the reasons why uh, no one had done the book before, because just shooting 800 photos uh, was not trivial, so. That's right. But uh, you're speaking of something I'm not familiar with, and when you're saying the emotional response to the type of a shot taken, uh, are, is that true? Uh, tell me how that works. Right, sure. Well, um, if you're doing a series new book, every scene uh, that you have in a movie, any script you can think of, uh, any movie you've seen, think of a scene, and it has, a, you know, and the emotional content is really... 99% of the time in commercial films and it is the is the point of the scene. What are the characters doing? How they change from the beginning of the scene to the end? What have we learned? And those are those are largely emotional things. Drama is emotion. And uh, how you put the shots together is how you support whatever the emotional uh, directive of the scene is, whatever the mandate is, uh, has to be shown in images. And you can either enhance it or you can undercut it. Um, any number of uh, shots can be used to determine really what, how the audience reacts to, to uh, the dialogue. So that part of it is um, when I wrote up in Shot by Shot, you know, and I, I have a series of images, um, you know, there's a little bit of a story set up for each of them. And in particular, I did a couple of storyboards where I literally do the whole storyboard for a, for a fairly long scene. And um, then I go back and I say, well, I didn't like that version. I'm going to do that over. And then I describe <laughs> that and the, and the reader can see me make my mistake. And then it would do it. And I did it two and three times showing how, how an idea evolves. And um, that was something that was unique to film uh, a books at the time. No one was really doing anything like that, but uh I know. Did that answer your question? Did that help with yes, the emotional that's, that's content? <laughs> yes, the emotional content. I hadn't thought about how the uh, shot uh, enhances uh, the emotional content. That's great. Uh, sure. And I really like how you divided your book into four sections. Part one, visualization, the process. Part two, yeah. elements of the uh, continuity, style, and part three, workshops, and part four, the moving camera. There's so much information in this book that I would think it'd take two to three seminars to teach it. You're, is that right? They're teaching it in schools? Yes, they most certainly. In, yes, and I, you know, I'm always interested to see how people are, are using the book. You know, and I've taught many, many, many places, usually two- and three-day workshops. Um, and it, it really does vary. Uh, but it does, certainly to get through uh, what's in the book takes some time because really it's not just reading the book. Um, I, you know, uh, at the time that I wrote the book, I didn't expect people to go out and try and replicate uh, some of the ideas by shooting because it was expensive. Today, it's very different, you know, because everybody can go out with their iPhone. So um, not only do you read the book, and if it gives you an idea, and I hope it does, then you take your iPhone and you go out and you can do something really in the, in the modern era that I, you could, I could not do for most of my career, which was go out and just experiment uh, freely and be able to come back and edit and uh, make something in its entirety at a level that you actually could project in a movie theater. And that's all come about really since the iPhone, which, believe it or not, I think has only been around since 2010. Doesn't that seem crazy? 
Yes, it really does. That's amazing. For a decade, it seems like we've had it our whole lives. It's like, you know, how can we get by without a phone, an iPhone? But right. um, anyway, anyway that has, that's been a game changer. So, yes, the book was divided into these sections, and I suppose if you were to use it as a template to kind of teach yourself, um, it would take quite a bit of time to get through everything. But um, the, uh, I'm hoping that the smaller – there are a couple of small messages in there that I think are really critical, and uh, some of your questions I think will probably lead us into some of that as well. Good. Okay. Well, I want to start with the first section called visualization, and you begin Chapter 2 with uh, production design. And the very, this is, to me, this is the very best place to start. So let's talk about how important it is to work with your production designer at the beginning of a film. Right, right. Well, um, well it's essential, but today, again, because of the way things have changed, uh, many more filmmakers are, are working on the visual designs of their films before they meet with the production designer. And this is really a matter of opportunity just because the gear makes it possible. You can go out and shoot pictures uh, today and get them you know, into a form digitally that you can share. And so we now have something called a vision book. And um, I was just asked to do one myself, as a matter of fact. I mentioned I have a film going to the Berlin Film Festival. It's actually, it's not a film. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a project we're trying to sell it there, and uh, part of the whole sales package, we have a very well-known sales agent, was um, that we had to do a short from the movie. We had to uh, provide the entire production background. But then um, I was asked to do a vision book. And so I am a visual artist, and so I was able to put these things together, and it's kind of like a pitch book. So anyway, that, that would be something you take to your production designer. But once you're, uh, uh, you've done that, uh, then uh, the, the production designer is a huge, huge, uh, you know, a, a very important um, person on the film because he kind of gets there before almost anybody. Uh, the DPs nowadays might come and visit you. You might talk to them a little bit, but they're not on, you know, you have months with the production designer. And again, the editor may be, you may be, you hired the editor and you're speaking to him. But generally speaking, the production designer is the guy who's there first. Uh, and so, uh, and it makes sense because the DP has nothing to shoot and the editor has nothing to edit if they haven't built the sets yet and uh, the production designer. So that's, yes. And the production designer will um, you work through with the director with uh, many ideas that will uh, change uh, the way that something is designed. I, I, I'm thinking um, uh, of Chinatown, for example. Here's a good example. Uh, you know, a beautifully uh, uh, realized film. And the production designer was Dick Silbert. And I knew Dick, and he, he was a legend. He actually ran one of the studios for a while. But uh, anyway, so Dick um, was the production designer. And as he read the script... And he realized that the Jake, Jack Nicholson uh, character, uh, Jake Giddies, um, it's, a, it's, it's a detective story in which the detective um, is uh, completely mystified almost until the very end. He doesn't even get the, the mystery uh, right. But in order to enhance the notion that it was always effortful uh, for Nicholson to get to the truth, he, uh, Dick said, well, you know, why don't we always have Nicholson, as he goes to these places to question people, he's always going uphill. So they chose, they chose that for all their locations, and that's when he goes to the various mansions of the rich people and the 
Uh, he goes to a retirement home at one point, and um, he's always going uphill. And so there's an idea that's not really <laughs> strictly a production designer set design, but it was such a good call. Yes. And uh, I know that in uh, the Queen's Gambit, they were talking about, um, and this is more a costume designer, but that falls under the, you know, that would be part of the production designer's team. He would bring in um, the costume designer. She would report to him. And um, uh, apparently, both the actress uh, who played the uh, chess prodigy um, and, uh, and I guess it was the, either the production or the costume designer decided, maybe, and maybe it was even the makeup designer, um, that she should have red hair. And so that drove decisions that she would have a green, you know, as soon as she had red hair, then everything else in the production design, every room she would enter, they would have to think about it in that way. Certainly they're not going to use a lot of red. She wants to, she's mm-hmm. to be the only red thing. So those are, and, and imagine how many hundreds of decisions that get made this way. So you go through the script with your production designer and that's your first uh, really, uh, the first visualization of the movie happens there. And uh, at some point you may bring the DP in and uh, typically they're so busy and the way movies are made today, they're not there for weeks in advance. You might have a, you know, a, a couple of weeks where the uh, DP can come in for a few hours a day, see what you're doing, talk about it. Uh, and then you'll sit and maybe screen movies together with the production designer um, but pretty much it's the production designers carrying the ball nowadays. And, um, and, there, and the other thing that's happening, at least on big movies, is that we have uh, so much pre-visualization going on. But, you know, that's, that's a whole other part of our, our, our topic this morning. Right. Okay. That's fantastic. Let's go to storyboards in Chapter 3. Uh, you say that the late Maurice uh, Zubrano was one of the most respected production illustrators and art directors in the trade, and he's called he has called a storyboard the diary of the film. So if it's a diary written about future events, uh, tell us how important this is and who benefits. Right. Well, this is, um, you know, Zuby started in the 1930s, and again, you know, everything in front of the camera in those days was a set including many outdoor scenes back then. So location shooting was rare, and on a soundstage, you only built what you needed for cost reasons. So you worked out how much to build in the storyboard, and then and the storyboards and set designs came before any set building began. And, or maybe they overlapped a bit. But in any case, you would only build half a house if that's all that was going to be in the storyboard. And uh, this prevented the director from going on set and making major changes to the shots, and he had to stick to the plan, which was the storyboard or even a shot list. So the point is that back in the, in the 1930s and 40s, most films, or many films, were storyboarded, but certainly they were worked out in a shot list, and it was a way to save money, which is why they considered Hollywood um, in the Golden Age really a factory, and it, uh, because they controlled everything. And, uh, but the storyboard is... Uh, you know, certainly represents uh, the kind of a way of thinking, which is that, um, sure, you could go on set without a storyboard, without a shot list, and uh, or you can go on location and just decide everything there. You can walk through what's going to happen and uh, and shoot it that way. But uh, and there are directors who who do that. Um, and prefer they may prefer to improvise both their their camera language and uh, the acting. 
But in in uh, for many many other uh, directors today, uh, you know, certainly storyboarding is uh, a way to work out the movie so that when you get on set, uh, there are many benefits. You can certainly work more with the actors because you're not sitting there figuring out the shots with the DP. And uh, um, it also gives you, you know, when you talk about what's writing, let's say a screenplay, all writing, uh, writers will tell you, is about rewriting. Um, you know, you yes. write the first draft of it. And a storyboard is no different. I mean, you know, when I, just to tell you personally how I do this, I sit down and, um, on a couch or my chair or someplace comfortable with a pad, uh, even an art pad, sometimes it's a yellow pad with lines, doesn't matter. And I have a, my pencil. Um, sometimes it's a pen, and I start to draw little squares that are roughly the size of a business card. And because I can draw, I, but I, I, I do very rough you know, shapes in the scene, and I might write under it what's doing, and I'll do that very quickly. I won't take more than 30 seconds or a minute to do a frame. And so I get these things out, and I look at them, and I know immediately, oh, second shot really needs to be where the third shot is, and I don't even need the fifth shot. And I'll cross, and I do it over again. And I draw, mm-hmm. and I go through. And then I may do that over again, and I may do it several times, and then I put it away because I feel, well, okay, I, it, I kind of have it worked out, but, geez, it's just not that original yet. I, have, I, I can make it better. And so over a course of a couple of days, I might be still working at that. Now, in the modern era uh, with computers, and because I'm, you know, I guess a pioneer of previs uh, in the digital realm, I can start to make these things in the computer. And I can use 3D software and the like, or 2D software. And I start to, maybe I'll take my uh, rough storyboards and I'll scan them into the computer. And I'll start to edit them with music. Um, and, uh, or sometimes, and, and this is, I'm now going to transition, uh, transition over to uh, what I talked about when I said storyboard is really, really a, a way of thinking about making films. Um, and because today storyboards aren't the only things you can use to achieve the same end. And that would be, for example, uh, it's going out and shooting video. I mean, with an iPhone, like if I wrote a scene of uh, a, a woman hiring a hitman to kill her husband in a diner, I can go to a diner and, um, you know, I can find an empty corner or do it late at night or talk to the owner. And say, Gee, I just, I'm going to be. I got these two people coming in. We're going to order food, do all the normal stuff, and I'm going to be moving around with the camera. Hope it's okay. And uh, of course, my camera's an iPhone, so who cares? And 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 I would shoot that. I'd have those people who might just be friends. They're not actors, uh, because it can mm-hmm. be. And I would shoot that whole thing. And I made many of my first when I was doing commercials back in the '80s. Um, I shot most of them on videotape first uh, with uh, whoever I could press into service as a favor. And it would look ridiculous because even if they, I was, let's say I was supposed to shoot something in a hockey rink. I actually had a commercial do that one, once. And, um, uh, but it, I, you know, certainly if I'm doing that before I'm going to make it, uh, I didn't have a, uh, I didn't have that. I didn't have a ice rink to go to, but I just took people out in the driveway and they would be the same distance from the camera and they'd be doing the same. They'd walk in, walk out all that. And, um, mm-hmm. I, and I would get the various, and I would cut that together and really, you would see all the major things you would have to know for your continuity and timing and such. And you might do that over several times. So when I would do those kind of exercises or create the shots in the computer, I know to create a few extras. So I'm sort of doing what we would call coverage. And then when I come back and and edit, so now I've started on the thumbnail drawings that I did at home sitting on my couch. I've done a number of passes on that. Then I took that 
and scanned them in the computer. Then I took them into the computer and made shots out of them in a very rough way, or I shot video. But I gave myself a couple of extra options that weren't in the things I drew because it's so easy just to move around with an iPhone, for example. <laughs> and then I would take it back, and then I'd be like an editor making my movement. I would put this together. And um, mm-hmm. I might say, well, gee, okay, that's pretty good, but I, I see a flaw. So this is, this is how much goes into making a scene when I do it. Um, there's a lot of uh, revisions. So that's so – let's say well, for your storyboard questions, the importance of the storyboard is that it's this way to take something that happens on set and costs maybe $100,000 a day uh, for a big shoot, you know, uh, and um, you don't have time really. You, 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 the pressure is enormous on the director, and you don't get that moment to pause uh, that you would have overnight if you make something, and then the next day you look at the morning and don't feel the same way about it. Well, if you don't do that and you try and do it all on set, you could be pretty disappointed when you get your dailies back, so to speak. And mm-hmm. uh, so this is a way to kind of rehearse uh, everything visually. You're rehearsing visually with the storyboard before you, the actors rehearse their dialogue, the director rehearses his shots and how it all goes together. And so when he arrives there, he can even, you know, even if he doesn't want to follow the storyboard exactly, now he's got the actors, he sees a new opportunity. But that's built. That change, which always causes, you know, disruption on the set. Uh, uh, you know, if you said, gee, uh, I, want to, uh, I want to get this other close-up over here. And you go to the DP and you go to the production manager and you tell them that. And they're going to say, well, uh, that's a $12,000 decision. That's going to take us <laughs> right. to relight. So yeah. if, you're, if you're doing that and you've built, you built uh, your, your uh, shoot day on top of all the stuff you've done in advance, you're going to be way more accurate as to the things you need and don't need. And uh, so uh, it, it just makes you way, 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 way more efficient. But it's not for everybody. I would say, you know, uh, the bigger the movie, the more storyboarding there's going to be. Right. I remember one uh, cinematographer, um, it was a story told about him saying that uh, you didn't get all the shots that they have listed. And, yeah. and he said, I know, I'm not going to take the rest of them because I don't want them to use anything but what I have already <laughs> shot. <laughs> right. Well, actually, that's a, I, there's, there's a very simple, well, you're right. Well, that's called camera cutting. And it actually came from Alfred, it was Alfred Hitchcock who said, well, I, I'll give you two quick stories um, from the golden age. Hitchcock uh camera controlled, so he only shot exactly what he needed. It was like a jigsaw puzzle. All the shots, they only went together one way. There was no extra. He didn't shoot coverage. Um, But John Ford, um, I think Maureen O'Hara once told this story. John Ford was shooting one of his, I forget what West, one of his later uh, Westerns, and there was a shot in which um, uh, he was being interviewed, and someone said, well, gee, I remember that shot. There was Maureen O'Hara in a carriage, and way in the distance, uh, the person she's thinking about comes in the shot, and he's so, so far away. And uh, it, it, we all kind of admired the fact that you didn't go in for a close-up. It was more, you know, it was more subtle. Anyway, and um, they said, why didn't you uh, get that? He said, well, if I had shot the close-up, they would have used it. Yes. And yes, he didn't want them to use it. So, you know, right, exactly. So that was, uh, yeah, camera cutting <laughs> is, uh, and it's discouraged to some extent by the studio. I can remember, I, can't, I, I think it was Saul Rubinek made a, a movie, a Jerry and Tom, 
and it was his first uh, feature. He was an actor. He got his first feature film in Canada, and uh, he liked as an actor. He 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 liked, and as did the pe- the people he cast, the idea that he was going to shoot long, long takes without having to do a lot of setups, and they could then perform rather than just a few lines. They could do their whole scene, kind of like they were on the stage. And uh, it actually it meant, it meant they could go faster, and the actors loved it. Uh, and mm-hmm. so he did. But the first, and I and I this is I believe this is at Sundance, as a matter of fact. And he was speaking before his film was screened. And I was there in the audience, and uh, he basically said, you know, the first stuff that started to go back to the studio, I immediately got pushback. They said, well, wh- where's all the coverage? You only shot it one way. There's just this one shot or two or three shots for the scene. There should be, you know, where are the close-up? Where are the over-the-shoulder shots? So he said he got, he got pressure to kind of go back because they didn't trust him. They wanted to be able to, at the end of the day, if – they didn't, the producers and the money people, didn't like the way it was being done. They could re-edit it with the editor uh, because no director really has final cut unless he's you know, Spielberg or someone. And so Saul Rubinick did not have that. So he did. But I think he, got a, he, he was able to talk them into doing these longer takes. The longer takes, I really love. Touch of Evil. That, that oh, my was, God. That's a good <laughs> film, wasn't it? Oh my! Yes, I love that. The opening shot has, for so many people, is uh, is like the touchstone of uh, you know really beautifully choreographed camera language. But it's interesting today. You know, there are many, many now. We live in an age of technique, and that really was brought about by the really the change in technology. And so uh, I think it's been to some extent that the detriment of better filmmaking but for example everybody now wants to do directors all want to do a movie with an entire one shot or or like in the i think the children of men was uh there was a very 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 long sequence shot um but many of these in my opinion are really no more than a steady cam uh or some other you know uh, tracking device and so uh, it's just really a medium shot you're getting the actor and you're following here and there and everything medium, but that's not at all what happened in touch of evil Touch of Evil combines close-ups, boom shots, uh, you know, traveling shots, moving from one character to another, to another part of the scene. Then that other it was way more complex and very, very, very uh, confident and uh, orchestrated uh, filmmaking. Um, but that's not the same thing as what happens today where people just want to have, you know, follow one character around and they think they're doing something particularly remarkable but it's really not so um yeah there's there's, there's some technique has been lost in the modern era so yes well okay let's go fast forward to page 160 of your book on camera cutting versus coverage and you say theoretically a fully developed storyboard can show a director all the shots he needs for a scene. If a director and cinematographer shoot the boards exactly as they appear on paper, even the lengths of the shots can be estimated. And this brings yep. a lot of credence and importance to the accuracy of the storyboard. So I would imagine this would save you a lot of time and money in editing. So share how this storyboard benefits you in editing. Right. Well, sure. I mean, um, well, it, 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 the storyboard might be shared with the uh, – I'd be surprised if the editor didn't see the storyboards. But by the time he gets there, he's getting the results of the storyboard. So let's say 
uh, we had a, a version where you have coverage, and let's say you get a, uh, a director who was formerly an actor. This is his first movie. He's worried about, you know, having to visualize it, and so he shoots a ton of coverage. Ron Howard shoots a ton of coverage. He's got multiple cameras per scene, uh, and, um, you know, he, he was an actor first, so that's his particular approach, and if it works for him, that's great. But um, for other people, uh, they're going to use the storyboard, shoot many fewer things, as you suggested. And so now the editor, even if he gets a storyboard, um, what he's really getting is only a few options because there's no coverage. He's what he's getting. Uh, he, he said, oh, okay, here's what we got. I got 12 shots in the scene. You gave me 15. So I got a few extra, but I don't have 29. And so obviously uh, on the editing, it's going to go much faster because there are many, many fewer options. Now, you know, there's a certain, you know, kind of a working emotional, there's a certain amount of ego in all this. In other words, the DPs have never, the directors of cinematography have never really uh, liked storyboarding. It kind of, you know, encroaches on their responsibilities. And, uh, but that was true of, there were directors like Spielberg, and, you know, I'm going a little bit, like Spielberg has always been a better, uh, you know, shot framer. Uh, than any of the DPs who work for him, who all of whom are phenomenal DPs. But, um, Steve, you know, they're not Steven Spielberg. And Spielberg. His sense of film language was probably the best of the directors in the last 30 or 40 years in a particular style. <clears throat> and uh, so uh, as a result, um, the editor, you know, uh, likes to edit. So he, he, he likes coverage. Uh, doesn't necessarily like the bank, you know, having only a few things to work from. Because then he's just kind of like a guy who's assembling. He's just putting together the jigsaw pieces rather than having his own input to shape the scene. Um, so it does come with, uh, these things do come with some agendas. And, uh, you know, for many years back in the golden age before Spielberg and Lucas, George Lucas came along, where, there, yeah, there were storyboards, but back in those days, no one really, the studios didn't really want to show what went on beyond, behind the scenes like we do today. Making of is a big marketing uh, has enormous marketing benefits to uh, movies being produced. But, you know, 50 years ago, no one really wanted to admit, the directors didn't want anybody to see that you know, everything was being stored by, storyboarded by, in a department. Uh, and they, he wanted to take credit for everything. So it was really uh, Hitchcock who first came along and made the storyboard something that people knew about and bragged about it and spoke about it because he controlled the storyboards. So, um, uh, but it wasn't always that way in the golden age of Hollywood. You know, if you were a director working for Warner brothers, you know, all those films looked the same because it was the same visual team. So the director had less influence, um, mm -hmm. uh, it, but it also depended on the director. So today it's, it's, uh, it's uh, quite different. When Spielberg and Lucas came along, they celebrated the storyboard and it became, you know, Valentine Books made the illustrated scripts and that was a big deal. And then it became a thing where behind the scenes stuff of how everything was made, the magic was being revealed, how they did green screen, everything. So that's part of a new era. But I'm only bringing up the fact that I was told when I first wrote Shot by Shot and started to talk to some of the legendary, like Marie Zuberano and uh, and Harold Michelson, who boarded the birds and, and other Hitchcock films. Of course, I was fascinated to ask them how they worked with Hitchcock and such. But anyway, they um, all said, oh, no one ever wanted to talk about the storyboards. We were kind of in a back room. You know, it's like we were not, uh, no one took the stuff and put it in magazines. So anyway, there is that element. 
But uh, you asked me about the editor, and uh, the editor, you know, everybody has their own agenda, wants to uh, have as much artistic involvement as possible, uh, but it's always a little bit of a tug of war. (laughs) Yes, it is. Uh, They say it's a wonder that a film ever gets made with all the things going on. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yes. And and you're the expert on the financial side, and I'm amazed movies even get funded. I mean, it's it's I've been through it now, which is why I mentioned my film this film I had uh, that I'm putting. It took us years. We had money. We didn't have money. We had uh, people attached. We didn't have people. It was just, you know, it was like trying to keep all your fingers in the holes in the dike, which is what a producer does. I mean, you know, really, it's just this. Uh, you get one thing. Uh, you need five or six things to make a movie. You know. And uh, yeah, you need, need the money, you need the actors, the distribution deals, and so uh, and it's very very hard to get them all together on the same in the same year, let alone the same month. And isn't that the truth? That's exactly right. Um, okay, well, I love your book, so I want to go to chapter four on visualization sure. tools and techniques, uh, filmmaking today. Uh, the tools today are digital, and the most important exceptions are pencil and paper, and sketching by hand is still remarkably efficient, the book says. I'm quoting. When the Walcom tablet uh, and your image editing software of choice, you use those, uh, for they're used by animators, visual effects artists, and production artists. So what programs do you recommend for filmmakers to use to create storyboards? Sure. Um, well, there are so many options today. Really, we are in um, a golden age of uh, film technology. <clears throat> I mean, who would have thought a few years ago? I mean, you know, I grew up with this in this industry, but um, – and we were all, you know, as, a, as someone who was a director, we're always interested in cameras. We love the gear, right? So back and always wanted to have my, my Araplex or my Eclair, whatever it was, this ungodly expensive equipment from many years ago. And um, if someone had said to me, oh, well, someday you're going to have a, uh, something, you know, the size of, a, of your wallet, you're going to be able to go out there and use it to <laughs> shoot movies, and the quality of that image will be, if you project it, it will look like, a feature film shot on film from 50 years ago. I would, yeah, well, that's where we are today. So the tools. Well, um, if you're doing storyboarding uh, and, you, and, you, and you're working in pencil, uh, you know, you can move that over to new technology and use the Wacom tablet and do that into Photoshop. So Photoshop certainly, which now has many competitors, but Photoshop really kind of owns that particular area, and it's a, it's a great piece of software that you can draw and make things in, and it's, it's easy to learn for, for relatively simple things. So you have that as a, for, for drawing, um, and you have a Wacom tablet, where, and again, there are competitors for that now. Um, uh, that's, you know, for a couple hundred bucks, you can get one of those, and then you can draw it directly into the computer, which is kind of how everything is being done today. You also have and then you have nonlinear editing programs because once you get these storyboards in, really the next step is to put them into a sequence like they would be in a movie. And, uh, wow, you have so many. You have Premiere Pro from Adobe, the people who make Photoshop. You have uh, Vegas. You have Final Cut Pro. You have Avid, which is still in many ways the industry standard um, in the mainstream. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, you, and for smallest of you, have iMovie. 
which I think comes with uh, the Apple operating system, and Windows has their own version for free. Same thing for audio programs. There are free versions of almost everything. Um, and, but now there's another option, and that's to shoot photo boards. As I mentioned, you can take your phone uh, and use it either as a still camera or as a video camera and shoot the things you need. And then your still pictures, you could, they could become storyboards. So you don't really like drawing. You can get a couple of friends and go in your driveway or in your house and shoot, uh, you know, stage them uh, to stand in the positions of, of what you would have normally if you're doing storyboards. And, of course, they look great because they're photos. And um, that's uh, another option. There's also dedicated software like Frameforge and Storyboard Artist Pro, I believe it's called, which is a 2D uh, uh, product. These were made um, uh, by companies that were providing tools specifically for filmmakers to do pre-visualization and storyboarding. And um, uh, sto- storyboard artist, if I, I think it's, it's uh, Paul Clatworthy is the guy who's got the company, and it provides uh, lots of resources of already created character uh, positions uh, and, and backgrounds, and you can buy more. They're inexpensive these libraries. And so you can put together a 2D sequence and it has an editing component. So it's great and it's quite easy to use. Then you have, and you can take in your own images as well. If you shoot in your photo board, you can pull it in there and that's like it's a built-in editing system. You also have the same thing with Frameforge, but that's 3D and that's quite a bit more complex, but also, you know, you can move the camera and have all the 3D perspective change. You can, and you have models, cars and things, and that gets you much, much closer but, of course, it's a, it's a greater commitment of time for a director and not to be minimized. You know, it's a bit of work to be able to do that. So, but if a director uh, is doing a low-budget movie, I mean, really like a micro-budget, kind of on their own nickel, uh, you know, probably uh, uh, you do it with a couple of friends or partners at a, you're at a college. You've got to do people. We're going to make a movie, and you get those people together. And you're probably going to find someone who has some art skills uh, and so you can use these tools um, to put your stuff together. But anyway, you, you know, it's not just previs tools or storyboarding tools. These tools are now so powerful that you can actually kind of make movies in them. I mean, if you had wow. a phone, if you had a mm-hmm. phone and After Effects or an editing, pro, or, or let's say a phone and a, a, you know Premiere Pro or iMovie, which is free, you can make a movie. You can make a movie that you could take to Sundance. That's all you need. I mean, it's probably a documentary, but uh, it's, it's, that's how sophisticated things have gotten. So, yeah, there's, there, there's so many options out there. It's, it's absolutely astonishing. Well, thank you. Good that's wonderful. I know filmmakers will really appreciate that. Now, let's go to part three uh, about wor- the workshop and discuss staging dialogue sequences you teach sure. us a method for visualizing stages, and uh, I think that would be marvelous if you could share some of that with us. Yeah. Well, basically what I, you know, filmmaking and particularly in the Hollywood decoupage style, which is kind of what we all know, um, that's what we grew up with, and it's pretty much our international style and has been for uh, 60 or 70 years, and uh, actually longer than that. But, um yeah, so I, I began, when I looked at it, I said, okay, uh, here I am, I'm uh, yeah, yeah, in my 40s, and I've been looking at films all my life and breaking them down, and there are patterns, and we have names for these patterns, so we have like a shot reverse pattern, 
These are things that every DP, uh, director of photography, and every director who's been doing it, they know all these things. They say, well, we're going to do an OTS. We're going to do the over-the-shoulder. So um, as I looked at, and I looked at all the directors I could think of who were stylists, and I realized they were just manipulating the same kind of information and options. So then that became the logic or the strategy for, for teaching really film language in shot by shot was to say, okay, well, I'm just going to show all these things um, over and over and over and over again in detail, because usually this is treated in the other film books that I've seen in four or five pages. And they talk about the line of action and uh, a couple of other things and that's it, but they don't really say, okay, well, here's a close up, but if you get really tight, uh, here's how it feels. Let's say it's a, I created a little sequence, which is what I did. And I would then uh, take pictures that were the, the uh, shots I would expect to use, and I put them in a little sequence in the book. And then below that, I have the same thing, almost identical, only I changed one or two shots. <clears throat> and then the idea is, as a reader of the book, you look at these things and you say, okay, did they, oh, I could have done this. And if I get really close, it kind of, you know, it seems like I'm violating the personal space of that actor or that character in the scene. It doesn't feel natural to me. Um, okay, gee, I learned something there that uh, just because I thought it would be impactful to go in on the eyes, um, it doesn't seem like a natural conversation between three people, three people who just met them, met each other. So it's those sorts of things that you learn as you, because I put up, you know, really dozens and dozens and dozens of these things. And I broke it down by two actors, three people in a scene, four people in a scene. And the idea was that once you get through this and you learn these, you can go on set with a, with a pretty high level of confidence that uh, when you ask the director to set up a camera and say, okay, let's go over here and do this. Here's what I mean. And you discuss it, that you're not making mistakes. Uh, or, or that you're also not having to shoot so many shots in the day that your actor doesn't get many chances to get his lines right from a particular position. And it's burning the actors out. So, therefore, uh, I, and I came up with one other idea, which was the A, I, and L, uh, which is the, uh, those letters represent, if you look down from a top view, it's your actors and how they're deployed or how they're staged in the scene, they tend to fall into patterns that resemble the letters A, I, and L. And it was just another shorthand way for, to, to, to kind of indicate to directors, you, know, you get on set and it seems like, oh, my God, where will I put the camera? I can put it anywhere. I can shoot under. I can shoot over. I can shoot close. I can shoot wide. What do I do? I have too many choices. And so this was just a way of letting someone read a book come out the other side and say, oh, okay, I get it. It seems overwhelming, but it's really not. And these things break down into uh, recognizable patterns, and I can make some pretty good decisions based on just knowing those patterns uh, well. And therefore, I know I'm going to exclude doing a bunch of these shots that prior to reading the book or learning these things, I probably would have tried to get, but I kind of know now that I'm not going to be able to use them. They're not really going to help me much. Um, so I'm going to, you, know, you get better at choosing your shots. That's really, uh, that one sentence kind of sums up what the whole effort was in that section. The workshop part of the book was to get you to be able to have uh, years of experience doing it uh, without the years of experience, embarrassing yourself, making mistakes, that everybody makes as they learn. 
No, you say when you look down at it, it's A-I-L. Those are the shots? Can Those you be are more the patterns. Well, you, let's say uh, let's take the letter A. A. So we take A. And, well, actually, I'll make it easier. Let's say you and I are, are, are talking and we're sitting at a table. And uh, you, now you put a camera and you're looking down. It's got two dots. That's your head and my head. And if you draw a line between us, which is the line of action, it's an I. It's, a, it's the letter I. Uh, you know, now you can you do it sideways, the dash, but I'm, you know, as you look down, that's, and if you add a third person to the table, a second, yeah, third person to the table, we now have three people at the table, and if you look down, it forms a triangle. Well, a triangle is the letter A. And uh, the same thing for the letter L, if you adjust it a little bit. And what you find out is that almost everything, you know, as you look at how you move a camera, well, the thing that bothers people the most when they're when they're starting is they've got, Let's say they've got a scene in a room, and it's a courtroom, and they now have to shoot uh, the people sitting at the plaintiff's table, the people at the defense table, the attorney getting up and going over to question a witness, and then walking over and talking to the jury directly. All those things are different shots. Um, but if you know the A, I, and L, and uh, you start to, you know, before you make your, you know, before you go on set, you're working in storyboards, and you sort of you begin to realize, well, wait a second, um, what looks like an infinite number of possibilities isn't infinite. That the only ones that really work, uh, typically, are these things that fall into these patterns. And if I look, you know, and I can memorize the patterns by saying, oh, okay, well, uh, this person's standing here, this person's closer. I'm looking at it that way, but. It's even easier to understand if you look down from the top and you go, well, wait a second. Here are these two things that I sort of memorized, which are, you know, uh, staging patterns as seen from the camera. Um, and if I look at them from above, they're really the same thing. Uh, so I didn't have to remember, I didn't have to memorize two or three things. I only had to memorize one, which is that it's an A pattern. Um, and qu quite frankly, just to be very, very honest about the whole thing, I don't expect anybody to become a director by learning these things and then, you know, on the third or fourth film, they're still worrying, worrying about the AI and L. They will metabolize this information into a new level of consciousness where, where it's a director knowledge. And so they've learned these things by doing it in sort of the schematic way, and it gave them a certain kind of confidence and a particular way to approach a scene. But once you've done it a few times, um, you, you, it becomes second nature to you. So you no longer have to go back to that. You can now think in terms of the dr dramatic necessity of the scene because you know mm. that, uh, you know, uh, you, you ought to have a close-up here or no, that's not the time to go in and a close-up. Uh, and um, so that, you know, that's really it. It's really to a way to train a director without having to go through the pain of doing it when there's money on the table and there's lots of people on the set. You know, and directing is not easy. I mean, just to throw out one thing that often is challenging is that you have, you have two, let's say you have two actors, and one actor, well, you, you know, and this really is a very common problem, and it's a big one, where you have actor one uh, doesn't like to do multiple takes. They kind of get there, they work themselves up to it, and, it, and in their first or second or third take, that's as good as it's going to be. And after that, it gets wooden. And then you have an actor, and let's like say he's in a scene with another actor, and that actor kind of comes from an improv background. He's not even going to begin to get close to his best reading for the fourth or fifth take. So how do you resolve that? 
And so that these are things that are well, nothing can help me with that except being a good diplomat and uh, right. you know making the the actors feel comfortable. <clears throat> but these are very real things. Those are the things you ought to be concentrating on, and uh, you need to get past the point where you're really worried about the basic mechanics of how to shoot the scene. And that's what Shot by Shot was created to to try and solve. The basic mechanics of shooting a scene. And once you've got that, then you can get into your creative styles because you know yes. the basics. That's okay. it. And, 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 it's, <laughs> and you do it by repetition. It's not something you read and then you go out and do it. And so uh, that's why I really encourage people nowadays to go out and make, make a film every week. You know, get wow. your camera, go out there. And it can only, you know, it doesn't have to be anything more than a person uh, doing a monologue. It, you can, it can be you. Uh, it can be um, rain. It can be the next time it rains, you know, get a little bag for your baggie for your iPhone or, you know, or an umbrella. And you go out and you shoot the water. Let's say if you're in the suburbs or anywhere, you know. So what, you go outside and it's drizzling and you see the close-ups of drops of rain landing in a puddle. Drain running, water running down uh, the gutter and dripping. Uh, you know, all the different close-up medium shots of rain. Take a piece of music and cut it to that. Take another piece of music and cut it to that. You know, and uh, oh that's now you're a director. <laughs> and you can make something <laughs> beautiful. When I was in high school, I can remember um, uh, there was a, uh, uh, we had like a group, movie that we made again my it was my experimental english class same same place <laughs> my film book and uh those and, and so we had different teams go out and shoot one team went out and they took a balloon and uh they put it out in the woods and other places all around my suburban community and, and there was a little bit of wind that it would blow and they would film it there and then it would land in a stream and they would follow it there in this red balloon it was a famous movie called The Red Balloon. And they followed this balloon around. They got that footage. And the other people went out, and they shot, without any coordination, uh, they shot footage of uh, street signs. And they kind of went out of their way to get street signs where people had to face them with <laughs> some other language. And, uh, <laughs> then, uh, and then they went, and they cut the whole thing together. <laughs> it was amazing. It was only like a minute and a half long. <clears throat> but... Um, you know, so the balloon goes someplace suddenly, and then the next shot is stop. It's a stop sign. And then <laughs> there's a green light of a, <laughs> excuse me, a traffic light. goes green, then they cut to the balloon, it starts moving again. And they made up this whole little story. There was no script. It was improvised. The two teams worked independent of each other. Well, you know, those are the things that an individual can do. Um, and, you, and you learn your craft. You know, and, and learn uh, your craft, actors, right. you have to mm -hmm. do that. I once, and I, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking of how can you make movies with the least amount of resources. And I had an idea for a, it could even be, uh, so you, you're sitting at home. I remember I wrote this for an article once and uh, I was writing an article about, you know, where do your ideas come from for shorts? How do you help film? I think it was film maker magazine or something. I don't remember anymore, but anyway, I did this thing and, uh, so I was sitting there, and I saw a spot on the carpet where I was where I, in my apartment. And I said, gee, um, I'll tell a story about that spot. And, uh, <laughs> and then I started to work out this little story and uh, where it came from, how it got there. You know, it's, uh, and that's, you know, people make so much 
trouble or difficulty for themselves or over-challenge themselves, what am I going to make a movie about? And they get stuck there. And they get stuck because they conceive things that are so large that they can't really uh, do it without money and resources and, and uh, you know, waiting for the weather, whatever it happens to be. And uh, my, my feeling is, uh, take the camera. There's always things to shoot. And go out there and bring them into the, into the uh, computer, and uh, they're your director. You don't have to wait to raise money. No one can tell you to make this. You've got final cut. You've got the best deal you'll ever have <laughs> as a filmmaker to control your work. <laughs> That's it. That is brilliant. Well, that was going to be my last question. Tell us what advice you have for filmmakers, and I think that's it. That's a great piece of advice. Well, that is it. it well, certainly today people are, you know, we, we are in a DIY world. You know, it used to be if you, if you published your own book, it was called Vanishing Publishing, and it was kind of like a, a, sort of a, a stigma. It was a, almost like a little embarrassment. Hey, uh, no publisher would do it, so you paid to do it yourself and print 100 copies. Well, then Amazon came along and made DIY publishing quite legitimate. And even though it's, it's flooded with, with bad books, uh, you, if you're a writer, you can get your work out there and you can reach an audience. Um, and, that's, and that's sort of true of filmmaking as well. You can make the thing. You can get it on YouTube or any other, other number of venues. And, yes, it's still hard. And, no, you're not going to get a million dollars. But, um, you know, you, there's an intermediary or, uh, place between – you know, getting out of film school and getting on set to make a movie that didn't exist, you know, even 15, 20 years ago. You know, it cost thousands of dollars to buy 16 millimeter film and all that stuff. Nowadays, it's free and uh, there's no reason not to do it. So, but, but it also has changed um, the filmmaking or the, the money raising part of this, as I've learned myself, which is that uh, a screenplay by itself nowadays won't really quite do it because they're the people out there are uh making supplemental things like the vision book i mentioned and or going out and shooting part of it i think uh i may have this wrong so i, I do this with a little with a disclaimer but um i think that uh vin diesel got his break by shooting a monologue of himself and wow. uh, just uh, you know and and it's gotten to the right hands and the same thing was true for south park they made the first short it wasn't even it was an episode it was only like five minutes long and uh it was it circulated all over the place for like months and i think it landed in george clooney's hands and then he got it into the right hands anyway those people are now making things because they can do it and even Mm -hmm. and so you know it doesn't have to be expensive it just has to be compelling and you know if you do a good a monologue i've been pushing monologues for years uh, because I like to write them, but uh, mm-hmm. they are incredibly powerful. They are incredibly powerful, and all you need is a camera, a wooden stool, and uh, you know a dark room, and uh, get one light on top of your actor. <laughs> and if you really write well, you can hold someone's attention. Yes, for five oh, minutes, three minutes. Great. Yes, that's a great idea for filmmakers. They could sell themselves. That's what it is. People give money to people, not to films. So you really have to sell yourself. That's right. That's, That's a great those way are to golden do it. words, Carol. I'm going to steal that from you <laughs> because you yeah, are right. Please. And you know, this is a personality. All business is, is 50% personality business. 
you know, you, uh, companies will buy something for $12 billion, uh, and, of course, is due diligence, but relationships drive those things. And mm-hmm. uh, certainly in motion pictures, that's, you know, uh, you know that, yeah, and that's actually true of the VCs. I was once told that well, you've got a piece of software technology that the, the uh, Silicon Valley VCs invest in the team, not in the idea. Because the idea could change, but they but they believe in the ability of these guys, they're, they're, uh, the folks they invest in, to get something made in the general direction they were headed, even with changes, just because they believe in those people. And uh, so, yeah, if you were to go, That's you, great. Know, uh, you could sit in a stool and, and, and pitch your idea. In fact, when I, the thing's going down to Berlin, I was required by the sales team, the sales agents, I, we have a short that we made from the film to show it's an animated movie so it's a, it was expensive to do and uh, then I had to be on for like two or three minutes answering those questions the sales folks thought the buyers would want to hear and so I'm sitting there and I did a kind of like a zoom thing and we recorded it and uh, so that you know that's critical because at the end of the day I'm the writer director so you know they got to be they got to believe in me they have to like me oh yes Yes, they have to like you, trust you, and be willing to invest in you. That's exactly yep. right. Well, we have had such a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much for your information. I didn't get to get into this new thing you have, but we've run out of time. I want to know more uh, about the uh, Studio Rio for books and movies. So we've got to sure. cover that somehow. And we can't happy, today because we don't have the time. But, yeah, that's, that's something I think people would want to know about. Well, you know, anytime you would like to do this, Carol, it's, I, I, I love doing it. You have a huge following. Uh, we're compadres at, uh, at, uh, at, our, uh, at our, our beloved publisher. And uh, I would love to, anytime you want to have me back, I enjoy doing I know I talk a lot about this stuff, and I talk fast, but uh, I've been doing this such a long time, and I'm still passionate about uh, filmmakers, filmmaking, and, and getting people to do this. So having the opportunity to reach out to your significant audience is uh, really an honor and, and a great pleasure. So anytime you want me back, uh, just give me the word. Okay, Steve. Thank you so very much. Best, uh, best of luck with Berlin. Yes, I will keep you posted. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, this coming month, and I'll, we'll, I'll follow up with you and uh, let you know yeah. how it goes. It's, it's a learning experience for me, too. Okay, good. Thank you so much. Right. And thank you, Claire. All right. Well, You're thanks, welcome. Claire, and thanks, Carol, right. and, and look forward to another right. time for doing it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Best of luck. Bye. Be well, Bye. everyone. Take, take care. I want to remind Bye-bye. our okay. listeners that David Raglan is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's david, R-A-I-K-L-E-N.com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.